Hello and welcome to Centre for Mental Health's podcast, where we talk about a whole range of topics around mental health and social justice. I'm Thea Joshi, and this month I chatted with Tom Pollard, an independent policy expert who's also one of our associates at the Centre. Tom has previously worked in social policy related to mental health and then trained as a mental health social worker. He also writes and campaigns around benefits and employment support for people with mental health difficulties. I caught up with Tom to discuss the fundamental issue of poverty and mental health, the relationship between the two, and what we can do to truly make change happen. Welcome, Tom. It's great to have you on the podcast today. And um, obviously, this is the first time we've met, but your reputation very much precedes you as someone who um, is deeply passionate about equality and mental health, um, and particularly kind of in the realm of policy and the benefit system. So welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here. <laughs> um, so obviously you've done a lot of work in the area of benefits, poverty and back to work support and the intersections of these three with mental health and obviously we talk a lot about the centre about uh, the relationship between poverty and mental ill health and actually we'll be releasing a briefing um, in the coming month on this very topic. I wonder if you could set out for us um, some of the key things that you feel need to change in order to kind of tackle this vicious cycle of poverty and poor mental health? Mm. It's, it's a huge question and I think what really struck me when I first started working on mental health um, at Mind was that people's experience of mental health problems are so fundamentally shaped by their kind of material circumstances and that if you're living in poverty in particular that experience is is so much harder. Um, just the day-to-day struggle of trying to make ends meet both makes it more likely that people will develop mental health problems but also means that if you have kind of pre-existing mental health problems, um, your life is that much tougher. And I think we have come a long way in terms of awareness and understanding of mental health. Um, And I think it's great that more people feel able to speak out about their mental health problems. But I think what has been lacking in the debate is real recognition that actually this is in large part um, about people's personal circumstances and experiences. And that plays a huge role in shaping who becomes ill in the first place and then what their experience of being ill is like. Um, and I think there's been maybe too much focus on people just getting access to NHS care and support, as critical as that is, um, and not enough on kind of shaping the circumstances which people live to try to reduce the number of people who become ill in the first place and also improve the kind of day-to-day experience of people who are living with mental health problems. Yeah, and I would totally agree with that as well. I mean, we we recently produced a briefing about tackling mental health disparities. And, you know, we're, we're very clear about, you're totally right, anyone can experience a mental health problem. And that's a really important message to hear. But that can't be where the conversation stops, because that won't address what we're, what we're seeing in society, which is that if you are, you know, struggling financially or experiencing racism or not having good housing, you are more likely to struggle with your mental health kind of understandably and so we have to kind of progress this narrative to say actually inequalities do affect people's mental health and as you say we can't just look at the NHS because our chief exec Sarah said this many times but you know we can put all the money we want into the NHS but if we're not simultaneously addressing the other parts of the system like the benefit system like housing like local government then we're not going to actually um, see that change that we want to. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, I guess we'll come on to talk about this, but now working um, 
part of my time in the NHS, you know, you have the really strong sense that there's there's a kind of hard limit, I guess, on how much you can do to help people in the short term. Um, you know, and you you can try to help improve their material circumstances and, and their kind of day-to-day life, but you're kind of, you know, running up a down escalator a lot of the time that people are, you know, disadvantaged and facing, you know, whether it's kind of overt discrimination or just kind of very adverse, uh, you know, social and economic circumstances. And um, it does make you realise the kind of limitations on what you can do within a health setting. And that often it feels like you're, you're to some extent kind of patching people up and, and sending them on their way rather than addressing the fundamentals because a lot of those fundamentals are kind of beyond your control. Yeah, thanks. That's that's really helpful insight. Um, on a related subject, I know you've recently done some work with the Joseph Boundary Foundation and the Independent Food Aid Network on food banks and poverty and mental health. And I'd love to hear a bit more about this. Yeah, so I started talking to um, IFAN, the Independent Food Aid Network, um, sort of late last year, around the time that um, the government was planning to take away the, the £20 uplift to universal credit um so they'd, they'd increase universal credit by 20 pounds a week in kind of recognition of um the difficulties people were facing during the pandemic but we're planning to take that away and you know we knew already that people w- were struggling even with even with that uplift and so i think i felt that it was going to be quite a critical moment and that kind of i guess just documenting in the first instance the impact of that on people and highlight highlighting how you know, the experience of having to turn to kind of charity to be able to feed your family. Um, the first of all, if people were in those circumstances, that was likely to be having quite a profound impact on their mental health. But the actual experience of having to go and seek that support um, would also uh, likely, you know, have a have a heavy impact on people's mental health. So the idea of the work was, was essentially to go into food banks, um, one in London and one uh, out in Kent and to just talk to people in, in in quite a lot of detail about what had led them to need support from food banks but more importantly kind of how that had impact on, impacted on them personally and I think coming at that as both a kind of you know social policy researcher but also someone who works in services now I felt able to have maybe a deeper conversation about people's mental health and, and kind of explore in a bit more detail how that was impacting on their mental health than, than perhaps I would have been able to um, prior to having worked in services. And, and I guess having the confidence to be able to kind of broach quite difficult subjects about around people feeling suicidal as a result of their circumstances. Um, and so, yeah, I spoke to um, a whole range of people, whether it was kind of people living by themselves, people, people from, people in families sometimes speaking to couples together um, about what had been going on and then produce this report with with IFAN and with Joseph Gantry Foundation to kind of I guess highlight the key themes that I heard and a lot of that was around you know just the kind of cold hard facts of people not getting enough from the benefit system to make ends meet um, a lot of it was around people just feeling like the, the day-to-day struggle of trying to make ends meet and of kind of dealing with I guess a lot of the admin and hassle of being in poverty and you know the the additional burden that places on people was making it so hard for them to see kind of a way forward um I think for me that was kind of the most profound message from what I heard was that actually it's really hard work being poor and
and especially if you're trying to support a family you know there's both the kind of mental strain that puts on people of feeling like they're struggling to to provide um but also just the kind of practical day-to-day you know having to having to budget so carefully and kind of make sure that every penny was being used efficiently and um worrying about every decision um that, that that has a kind of financial implication um was you know taking up a lot of people's time but also just taking up a huge amount of headspace and causing a huge amount a huge amount of stress mm. um and actually if people had a bit more to start off with and a kind of more secure baseline that they'd be much better placed then to kind of be able to work their way out of their circumstances if you like yeah thanks for that and I think it, it kind of leads me to ask well, what what needs to happen for that not to be such a challenging um stressful process for people is it that people simply need we need a higher baseline of benefits look to simply more money each week each month is it that the admin behind it just makes it so difficult to manage I'm sure it's very complex but could you talk us through a few of those things yeah it's a funny one because on the one hand it is you know it obviously is a complex issue and people's circumstances are very different and they're facing different challenges but it kind of it feels simplistic and almost a bit crass to say it, but at the heart of it, it's it's not as complex a problem as it might appear. I mean, I do genuinely think that a lot of this is fixed if people have a have a have a baseline level of income that is enough to make their ends meet. And I think we've got to a position where a lot of the debate is about whether benefits should go up a little bit or stay where they are, but it's not really pegged to the reality of what people need. And actually what's happened over the last kind of decade is that benefits lost value again you know in real terms um for quite a number of years the rate the benefits were increased by each year was frozen and so we're at a place now where benefits are kind of worth the same in real terms as they were back in kind of the early 1990s and so it's it's kind of a you know a quite significant low and so we get stuck now in a debate about well how much the benefits need to go up by in order to keep pace with rising prices actually the baseline we're starting from is so low that that people were struggling before the kind of cost of living crisis in in inverted commas hit and before inflation became so high so i I just feel like the conversation around this is often very unrealistic like it's not it's not grounded in the reality of what people actually need if people weren't struggling day to day to meet their basic costs and most actually most members of the public agree that benefits should cover people's basic costs but the disagreement is around whether whether they currently do and and there's a perception out there that people are kind of squandering the money they have but all my experience in this space suggests that actually you know people are doing their best to get by on a very very low income and that rather than kind of trapping people in some kind of dependency having a level of income that means people can get by frees people up to be able to kind of focus on well you know how do they want to move their life forward rather than being trapped in the cycle of constantly just about making ends meet the whole time yeah and I mean when you describe it like that it's so obvious isn't it the way that that would impact someone's mental health as you say there's a huge amount of baggage around that debate um thank you for for shedding light on that though Tom that's that's really helpful and and I, I guess I also wanted to sort of ask you about, because obviously you were in the mental health and the social policy space for many years and recently retrained as a mental health social worker through the ThinkEd programme. And I guess I just wanted to ask you what motivated you to do that? Yeah, so it was a few things. I mean, if I'm completely honest, one of the things was just 
I spent a long time working at Mind on issues around, um, particularly around kind of benefits and the social security system and employment and and the intersection of that with mental health. I was then asked to go on secondment to DWP to advise there on mental health, and I spent 18 months in that role, which was interesting but ultimately very frustrating. And I came out of that not not really being sure exactly what to do next. I mean, I, I didn't want to just go back into sort of banging my head against the same wall of trying to influence what I felt was quite a kind of intransigent um, and stuck department in terms of kind of seriously thinking about how do you address the, the, the sort of issues that I was working on. Um, so part of it was kind of, you know, wanting to have a, a slightly different, um, sort of take a slightly different path. Uh, and part of it was feeling that you know, I'd worked on mental health for a long time, but actually not had a huge amount of exposure to kind of the reality of day-to-day frontline mental health services, you know, other other than having used mental health services myself um, when I was younger. Um, and I felt like it was a big gap for me that you couldn't kind of know about a lot of these issues from kind of a policy perspective, and, and you could talk about them a lot, and you can kind of know the technical details, but it's very different being immersed in it day-to-day. And I've said before that it kind of felt, it felt a bit like going from kind of seeing things in black and white to seeing things in colour. That mm. there was just a really, a really, you know, fundamental difference when you're face to face with these things day to day. And, and you're much more able to see the reality of how these, all these different issues that you think and talk about in a policy context kind of interweave in someone's actual day to day life. Um, so some of that's kind of, hard to pin down and define but I think also there was you know it's been really useful to to get a clearer sense of how different services work together or don't work very well together and you know the kind of intersection between health and social care and you know working as a social worker within the NHS is quite an interesting role because you kind of straddle that divide um but yeah it's just it's been a really interesting you know and kind of valuable journey for me to kind of move from thinking about these things in the abstract to being kind of very up close and personal with it um and i think it's it's given me kind of a a a perspective that's helpful then when i return to thinking about those kind of social policy issues because i do have that kind of first-hand experience of helping people to to kind of work through these issues on a day-to-day basis yeah that's a really helpful perspective and i guess i mean for those of us who don't work in uh, mental health services um could you talk us through what you do on a day-to-day basis, what that kind of maybe looks like? Yeah, so I've actually ended up at the moment working in, in a crisis team um, a couple of days a week, um, which is, is quite different from working in a community team where you have, have a, a group of people that you're allocated to work with and you support them over a long period of time and you, you, you sort of help them to work through a, a whole range of issues they're facing um the crisis team is much more kind of focused on kind of a short-term intervention where people are at kind of significant risk either because they're feeling suicidal or because maybe they're um experiencing um a kind of psychotic episode or um something that that puts them or or maybe other people at risk in some way and it's quite intensive contact but it's contact that's shared across the whole team so i'll go in on any given day and I'll be allocated to either go and assess someone to see whether um, the crisis team is kind of appropriate for them and whether they want to work with the crisis team. 
or to visit someone who's who's currently supported by the team and we're seeing them either every day or every other day and a lot of it is focused on kind of trying to monitor and manage risk but i also feel that coming at it from a kind of social work perspective and having gone through that social work training does you know give me the ability to to look a bit more broadly at what's going on in their life and try to think about other services that might be able to to, to help them to address um, what's going on for them. Because often when someone's experiencing a crisis, it is often triggered by things like financial issues they're experiencing or issues within their family and relationships or issues within their work. You know, it's, it's, it's not often that someone kind of just falls into a mental health crisis for no reason at all. It often is about the kind of economic and social circumstances. And although you can't, fix that within a kind of short period of time that the crisis team works with someone you can think about you know what what are other sources of support that might help this person um so for example um just in the last uh, year or so this new this new scheme has come in around death and mental health where if someone's experiencing a mental health crisis they can get what's called breathing space to kind of have um some relief from from the debt uh, that they face and uh, the companies involved um, or the services, the agencies, sorry, involved who they owe money to have to kind of give them a, a period of time um, where they're not being hassled for um, for repayments. So obviously, you know, you've worked in the kind of the policy settings, as you've said, and you've also worked obviously on, on, the, on the ground, so to speak, um, on the front lines. And I guess, um, as we've alluded to before, there's this kind of can feel like um, a sort of disconnect between the high level policy and um, legislative conversations and then also actually how that's experienced by people on the ground and people working in ser- like in services with people. Um, how do you make sense of that? And do you think that kind of having had a, almost had a foot in both camps has helped? Yeah, it is. I mean, it is helpful in terms of my, I guess, my perspective, my understanding. I think it does make you realise that you know, it's very difficult to to kind of make those things align, I guess, in some ways, because I think a lot of us working around mental health now believe that there needs to be more focus on kind of addressing the kind of social and economic circumstances that often lead people to develop mental health problems and have a difficult time when they have mental health problems and to think more about prevention and kind of public kind of public health perspective. But actually transitioning from the kind of current day-to-day work of mental health teams to a model that's more like that is it's kind of difficult to to see what are the steps in between that get you there and yeah. I know there's thinking yeah. that's going on around around how you do this but when you're kind of there day-to-day on the ground and there are people in crisis and actually even within community teams that are supposed to be doing that kind of longer term work with people rather than just responding to crisis the reality is that often case people's caseloads are so high that all they really end up doing is dealing with the crisis um and that was certainly my experience in in community services was that as much as you want to kind of focus on kind of long-term um more kind of social objectives for people like supporting people towards work and stuff often you do end up being pulled into just the day-to-day crisis that people are facing and that's partly because um you're you're being expected to support so many people and, and you know and resources are scarce so on the one hand you can see how there's you know there's a strong case for just putting more resources into NHS, NHS services but on the other hand I totally agree with the point 
that you mentioned earlier around how there's only so far that can get you and actually we need to we do need to move towards a you know a model that that is looking at mental health much more in the round and and really recognizing that mental health isn't just about health you know actually almost every government department has a role to play in you know addressing the circumstances that lead to people developing mental health problems and struggling to move on when they do have mental health problems um and i think you know we have seen more discussion of this within within government and within within kind of policy debates and there, there is more recognition about the, you know the idea of there being social determinants of mental health but i think where we struggle is is, is kind of making hard changes that act, that actually impact on that you know so the government has a consultation out at the moment around the kind of future strategy for mental health and it it talks a lot about social determinants but at the same time you know as we talked about earlier we've seen a benefit system that's been kind of hacked away at over a decade and it's just this kind of you know disjoint between between the way these things are talked about in principle and how it then actually plays out on the ground and i think until that stuff is really firmly embedded and actually you know mental health is taken seriously within those other agendas it's hard to see how we how we do move from this kind of reactive uh, model which which kind of bounces from one crisis to the next and it, and is always facing a shortfall of resources and funding towards something that is more kind of you know genuinely like rooted in communities and helping people to to stay well and ensuring people have the kind of, the kind of building blocks they need to live a kind of fulfilling life which then makes it less likely that they become unwell in the first place yeah and i think um it feels like what we're seeing is it's easy for the government to talk about you know mental health and it's kind of almost easy ish to maybe talk about oh inequalities inequalities are bad but then when you look at the reality of what that means and if we look at okay how do we tackle inequalities it includes discussion about structural inequalities and as you say looking across the board at people's lives um to, to see to see what's impacting their mental health and, you know, something we've definitely been calling for for years is this kind of mental health in all policies approach so that it's not simply the NHS or the Department of Health that, that think about mental health, but it is the DWP and it is the Department for Education and, um, you know, housing services. All of that needs to have a, a consideration of how will this policy affect people's mental health in the long term? And we, we're definitely seeing that um, in the DfE and some of the stuff around behaviour in schools, for instance. Um, that, that we're talking a lot about mental health, but we're not necessarily always connecting this up with other policies that are being made. Yeah. Um, well, I think a good example of that, I mean, I've got a friend who's a teacher and was I was talking to him about um, kind of what what he sees in terms of kids who are struggling at school and kids who are, who are coming from families that are having a difficult time. And I guess the kind of, the impact that a school can make on kind of mitigating those issues. And I was quite surprised, you know, from someone who's kind of very, you know, rooted in teaching and very kind of passionate about the value that teaching brings. His perspective was, well, probably the most fundamental impact you can make would be to ensure those families have enough money to live off. And again, you kind of come back to what feels like or is easily portrayed portrayed as quite a kind of simplistic point around money. But I do think that... (laughs) When so many people are struggling to kind of meet their basic needs, it's it's kind of hard to get beyond that. Um, and you know, for all the kind of creative thinking and policy making around different ways that you might 
you know, you might support people's mental health and support people who are experiencing mental health problems. I think we, we there's sometimes a kind of reticence to face up to the reality that that unless the kind of basic building blocks are there, we're going to continue facing a huge problem. Um, because you know, when people are are living in poverty, it's not just about whether they can, you know, afford to buy food, although that, that is critical. It also means people are, you know, often less likely to have a kind of good social network around them. It often means they're going to have a kind of lack of lack of routine, maybe a lack of feeling they've got a sense of purpose. You know, they're more likely to live in, in, in kind of poor conditions physically. They're less likely to have access to green space. All these things that we know are kind of critical components of good mental health. Um, so it, it just kind of radiates from that central point of not not having enough money. Um, and the impact of that is so broad and all the areas it impacts are highly relevant to people's mental health. Um, so I I just think to some extent we, we have to get real about, you know, there's there's lots of stuff we could do that would be nice and would make a positive difference to people. But for as long as we're leaving so many people kind of below a level of kind of a basic existence, we're, we're not going to make much progress. Yeah, I think we've, we've come full circle in terms of what you were saying earlier about, you know, in some ways, these, these issues are very complex and multifaceted and require a broad approach across the system. But also, in some ways, they're kind of really plainly obvious and basic of like, people need enough money to live on before we can address these other things sometimes or before we can actually see real progress happen um and and sometimes that's a difficult message to hear as well because mm. if things are complex and people can get together and have big steering groups and task forces and and consider all of the stuff and um you know rather than getting on and saying actually there's some quite simple things that we could do yeah no i think that's completely right and i think sometimes it feels a bit like having all these conversations about how to fine-tune the design of a car and we're ignoring the fact that there's, 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 like, there's no petrol in the tank or, they, or, or there's no engine in the car and it's like it's this kind of elephant in the room and I, th- I, th- I think some of that comes from the fact that you know we've we we have been working um during you know over the last 10 years or so during a long period of kind of austerity and it just felt like that conversation about adequacy and like people having having the basics and that being the building block of good health and particularly good mental health, that conversation just wasn't on the table because there wasn't a willingness to, to talk about, you know, increasing benefits or, um, you know, tackling sort of low paid work. And the problem is then that people who are working on this space have to find other ways to try and make a difference. And so we end up kind of talking a bit more at the periphery around, you know, how do we, how do we adjust and, and, and kind of, um, fine-tune other aspects of the system to try to make kind of a marginal difference but I think those of us who have been working on these issues for a long time know that at the heart of it there is there is this element in the, in the room of lots of people you know way too many people living in poverty and 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 struggling day-to-day to make ends meet and that to some extent all the other stuff is kind of window dressing until we get that right exactly um a hundred percent I just wanted to ask before we close, Tom, um, about about you and how you are there things that you do to maintain your own well-being? Because obviously you're working in quite a critical area and, and you're working kind of on the policy stuff and on the front line. Are there things that you do to yeah, to to stay well? Yeah, I mean in, in some ways I feel really lucky because I spend 
a couple of days a week um, working in services, as I said, and then a couple of days a week working on kind of freelance projects around sort of back in that world of kind of research and policy with different think tanks and charities. And it's really nice to be able to split my time in that way. And that that helps my mental health because it means that I'm never kind of um, getting stuck in one thing and there's that variety. Um, and actually, if I'm honest, I find I find the days working in services quite good for my mental health um, because it does feel practical and hands-on and you're kind of, you can see the impact of your work, whereas often working in policy, you know, especially over the last decade, it can feel like you're kind of banging your head against the wall a little bit. Also going going into a team and having social contact, and I know this is an issue that's, that's kind of live for lots of people now is to think about kind of what their work looks like post-pandemic, but I definitely found that that you know I was going in I was going into work in services um most of the way through the pandemic and that you know it was helpful to have that social contact and to have that change of scene. But yeah, I mean I think having worked in mental health as a field for a long time, it's something that I'm really alert to and you know I am aware of how um work but also lots of other things can impact on my mental health. And I do try to be quite active in kind of making sure I'm getting the basics right. And I think also when you're advising people day to day, you know, in services on, on, you know, on what to do to try to help themselves feel better. You know, it feels like you you then need to practice what you preach a little bit. So, and, and often, you know, you are talking about the basics, like things like good sleep and good diet and exercise, you know, it's, it's boring and it's repetitive and, you know, it, 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 it feels a bit trite to bang on about it. But, you know, in my experience, those things do make a big fundamental difference to my mental health. Um, so it probably is helpful that I'm sort of, you know, as well as, you know advising other people day to day that's also a good reminder for me to kind of make sure I'm getting those basics right yeah exactly I think it's funny isn't it sometimes um I found that when I don't feel good being told about kind of diet or exercise or sleep feels so kind of reductive doesn't it You're like yeah. how dare yeah. you and then you like do have a good night's sleep and you do feel a bit better and you think okay there's there's something in this it's not the whole story but there's definitely something to these basics yeah. um so yeah Oh, Tom, it's been so great chatting to you. And I will link uh, in our show notes to the work you've been doing with Joseph Roundtree Foundation um, and lots of other bits and pieces. But thanks so much for your time. And yeah, cheers. Thank you. We really hope you enjoyed the episode. To join the fight for equality in mental health, please support our work at centreformentalhealth.org.uk slash donate. See you next time.